Exodus chapter 1 as we look into the scriptures again and we'll be reading a lot of scripture and right here of course and so I hope you'll be faithful to look. God bless you for your faithfulness to be here. Um, we have seen in recent days the uh, woeful lack of understanding and knowledge of scripture in our country and by, by professing Christians in our country and so coming here and studying the word of God gives you and me all of us a foundation gives us um, a place on which we stand and of course it changes us the word of God is what changes us and the pablum and all these little sayings and things don't really work a miracle in your hearts but this will um, line upon line precept upon precept Exodus 1 verse 7 you'll recall and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them now there rose up a new king over, G over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Interesting, right? Right away, we go right back to Joseph. This is a continuing story. We know how Joseph got there. We know how his brothers got there. But a new king shows up. You know, things happen in life. Things can be great at work and you get a new boss. And he's, he's the opposite of your good boss. We could get a new president. And every, or the same one, and everything changes. You get a new neighbor, and it changes. Your life that was so good, one crazy, we had one once, one crazy neighbor can change your life and make it miserable. That new condo director? <laughs> wow. Well, that's what happens. Verse 9, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also under our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Father, please help us tonight. We need your word. This powerful book, this two-edged sword, that is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We thank you for it. Help us now to focus our minds on it and to be alert and attentive to what the Spirit has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that's going to become really clear and fairly quickly about this study in the second book of the Bible is that so much like Genesis, Exodus is also a foundational book. The first word, as we noted last week, now, first word of the entire book, now, it's the same word, the Hebrew word there, that we have for and. It's not just a connecting word to our previous study in book Genesis. It's also a word of continuation. God is continuing to lay this foundation of truth for all of God's people, and we need this foundation. And it brings us again to something that we just touched on last week about this new Pharaoh's foolish decision to defy the true God and the God they knew about because of Joseph and then enact a policy of really infanticide. The modern term is afterbirth abortion. Look at verse 8. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Now what's interesting, again, about the word wisely here in verse 10 is that the Egyptians were known for their wisdom. They were known, in fact, for being the smartest, most enlightened people in all of the world, in all of the ancient world. 
So that when Pharaoh says, you know, we're going to be smart about this, we're going to be shrewd and we're going to be clever and we're going to be wise, then you can be sure that all the Egyptians, at least, were totally on board with this because they boasted of their so-called wisdom. You can also be sure that when Pharaoh's daughter takes in, as we'll see later, and adopts a little Hebrew baby, she and her father would see to it that he too would be indoctrinated, that this same Hebrew boy would be raised in all of the worldly wisdom of the Egyptian mind. And as you'll see in the next few weeks, it says about Moses, this child, quote, grew, was brought unto Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. Now think about that. Her son? The Pharaoh's, the grandson of Pharaoh? And a prince now? A prince he would be in the land of Egypt. Yep, and that's why the Holy Spirit of God, thousands of years later, puts into the New Testament what Stephen said in his dying breath. Look on the screen. Let's read it. Stephen's preaching. He's going to be stoned to death in mere moments. He said, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children, and to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up, and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians." Now, folks, we need, to, we need to be sure and register that statement. Make sure that you put that truth in the back of your mind, in your hearts, for understanding what's about to come tonight and in the next couple weeks. From a baby, Moses was learned. He was taught in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Pharaoh said in verse 10, let us deal wisely with them. Let us use all of this great training and all of our knowledge our pagan kingdom is known for. And to this day, ancient Egypt has always been called, quote, an advanced civilization, ancient civilization. But that doesn't change the reality of Egypt in those days. It doesn't change the truth about Egypt in those days. Because the truth of the matter is, the land of Egypt was full to the brim with graven images. The truth is, their pantheon teemed with these little gods. They worshipped Hathor, the sky goddess. Those are cows. They worshipped Osiris, Thoth, the moon god. The fox-headed Anubis, the sun god, Ra. And scores and scores and scores of others that governed every phase of Egyptian life. There was no end to them. They worshipped cats and crocodiles and bats and beetles and lice and mice. They prayed to them. They sacrificed to them. Never realizing that they were not only false gods, they were powerless gods. And right from the very beginning, again, as you will see, it was God's avowed intent to expose the impotence of these gods. Aaron's rod turned into a serpent and swallowed up the rods of Egypt's high priests. 
That serpent, those serpents, are the primary deity that Pharaoh himself wore on his own crown. So that over and again, as you know, we'll get through the plagues, God is showing them, by the way, by His grace, that they were blind. He was showing them that in spite of their advanced civilization and all of their intelligentsia and so forth, all of their supposed enlightenment, they were all in spiritual darkness. We look at America today with all of our educational institutions, right? All of our enlightened people embracing the folly of evolution, denying there's a creator, denying, of course, his word, believing and teaching that there are many gods, gods are everywhere. In fact, that even you, you yourself are a little G, a little God. All of our supposed enlightenment, we're a nation in desperate need of someone and people who will tell the truth some light. Egypt's not the only nation to, quote, deal subtly and enact laws that lead to infanticide. Oh, we're so enlightened in this country, aren't we? Millions upon millions. And all of this backstory about the book of Exodus, where we see right now, all of this background is given to serve as a giant spotlight on some incredible powerful examples of faith and of courage even in the darkest most dangerous of situations in other words god this is what you're going to see god takes his divine finger and he takes that finger looking down on this world empire of which the pyramids and other sphinx are still there but he takes his finger and he points us all the way down to the direction of something tiny something absolutely irrelevant to the Pharaoh. Notice how out of tens of thousands of Hebrew women, these are captives in Egypt. Two of them are mentioned in Scripture by name. Verse 13, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with, the, with rigor. And the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, the name of the other was Pirah. Now, folks, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the names of these two midwives. I'm pretty sure that you understand the desperate situation that they're in right here, and not just these two. The same is true for a third woman in chapter 2. Look across the page, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. So here you have in the darksome days of the Egyptian captivity, when there's death sentences on their own children, the stories of three women, Shifra, Pira, and also Jacobet, whose name is revealed later on. They're not exactly the most famous names in the Bible, obviously, but it's also obvious, beloved, in reading this story and from Hebrews chapter 11, these three women are among the greatest examples of faith and faithfulness in all of Scripture, in all of history. 
And God gives us their names and their story for a reason. He takes the big view and goes right down here to show us something. Why is this significant? Why is it significant that God begins the story of redemption with women? Well, remember what Pharaoh said. Remember his wise plans? The enlightenment guy? The last line of verse 16, If it be a son, you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. You know, this king of Egypt was afraid. Remember that these men would grow up one day and they would join the enemy's army and he decided to kill all the future men. Let the women remain slaves. They will eventually be absorbed into Egypt's bloodline. And let's just kill. You know, infanticide always leads to genocide. So what does God do? He shows us the faith of women. He shows us here and he uses this, these very women that we just mentioned to foil the plans of Pharaoh and of Satan. And you'll see it's of Satan. And he also shows us a little baby. Just Pharaoh says the women are weak. The world looks at his baby as weak. These women, along with all of the Jews, were strangers. They're slaves in this land. And you go as far back as Jacob and the best you could say is that their heritage, their ancestors, they were born as exiles and refugees and slaves, and as far as they could see into the future, that's all they'll ever be. Born into slavery, they're going to die into slavery, their children are going to be born into it, and their children are going to die, because we're talking about hundreds of years now in the land of Egypt. This same bondage and oppression would befall their children and grandchildren and generations to come. And who knows? When and if this deliverance that Joseph talked about in his prophecy before he died would ever come. Go back to chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved. The Egyptians were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. And you see it mentions brick and mortar and all that. That's the cities they built and the pyramids they built and the sphinx they built and all the rest of it. This is the context. God wants us to know that this is the condition in which we find these three women. It was nothing but discouraging, disheartening, debilitating. You know, it says in verse 14 that the taskmasters made their lives bitter with this bondage. It wasn't just the job. It was the lash of a whip. And if you're wondering, as I'm sure most of the Jews in that captivity did wonder, where was God in all of this? The text goes on to show us where he was and what he was doing. God shows us where he was and what he was doing. Let's take a peek ahead just for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 23. And it came to pass in the process of time, the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Chapter 3, verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know 
their sorrows. I know their sorrows. And then the first line of verse 8, I and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Do you notice the four things? You ought to underline them. The four things that he says in the midst of all this bitterness and this affliction, I have seen the affliction. I have heard their cry. I know he already knew their sorrows. And I remember my covenant. And finally, I am come down to deliver. This is what God was doing. And this is where God was while the children of Israel were suffering in chapter 1. But here's the thing. This is what's vital to see. These women, Shifa and Purah and, and Jacobet, these women, they didn't know any of what we just read. They didn't know for sure. You know, this was written by Moses, the adult grown Moses, almost 100 years after he was a little baby here. They didn't know this. They just trusted. Verse 16 again, and he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools where they gave birth, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. This is chapter 1. If it be a daughter, then she shall live. Now folks, look. This is not just information for a story. These are believers. These are women. They are midwives. They are nurses. They're caregivers. They're comforters. They are already living in a bitter, oppressive situation. And that bitter, oppressive situation, all of a sudden, in just a moment, because of the wisdom of this Pharaoh, this king, becomes unbearable and intolerable. You know, a midwife was the ancient even the modern equivalent, I guess, of a nurse in a maternity ward. They were called, they were used to comforting women. They were assisting mothers, helping babies survive. What they were there for was medical care. The last thing they would ever do is take an innocent life. But that's exactly what the law says now. That is precisely what Pharaoh has commanded all of them to do. And if they ignore the command, they themselves risk death. So what do they do? Let me ask you, beloved, what would you do? It's the law of the land. You talk about paying a price for being pro-life. And again, they're all but alone. They are completely alone on all of this in the sense that there's no support groups. There are no legal defense funds. There's no advocacy organizations that are on their side that they can call or turn to. There's no Christian Law Association. It's not as if anywhere during their entire lifetime during this, there's a prophet named Jeremiah or Ezekiel over here and over here prophesying on their behalf. There's no Elijah or Elisha working miracles. That they can point to and say, okay, there we go. These women were a, a long way from Canaan. And they were a long, long way from New Testament revelation that we all enjoy. And they were very far from any sign, any visible sign of deliverance. And yet, when they are told in this land, by the king, by the pharaoh, this is what you're going to do. This is what they said. Verse 17, 
But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children alive. Wow. Now, can you imagine, it says, they feared God more than the king. Well, that's me, Pastor. I fear God more than the king. You know, I, I would have thought 99% of all believers were like that in this country until COVID came. It didn't take the threat of death to get people to say, don't go to church. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. We should just call everything off. It just took the threat of a virus, possible sickness that would lead to death, but not killing someone. So that even in the face of bondage and oppression and certain death, they didn't say, God's not fair. This isn't right. I'm bitter at God. I've lost all confidence in God's promises because look at the situation. I'm angry with God. I'm not saying that they never despaired. I'm pretty sure they did. They're human beings. But they're not despairing here. They're certainly not compromising. They looked at this immoral law of their king. And they looked at the moral law of God. Understand, they didn't even have the Ten Commandments yet. They had the law written on their hearts. They had the knowledge of the revelation that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. But here they are, and they still choose in the face of certain death to do what's right in the eyes of God. Verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives fear God, that he made them houses, literally households. This is faith. And now you're going to see it in the life of Jacobin. Verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast in the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Let me explain what happens here. Pharaoh realized it's not working. My public policy isn't working, or my private policy. And so now he says, okay, if the Hebrew midwives are claiming, basically claiming, that these boys are born before they have time, before the paramedics can get there, then I'm just going to go to the extreme. No more secrecy. Just toss all of the Jewish boys into the river Nile as a sacrifice to our gods. The Nile was a god and crocodiles were gods. And so you need a two for one for him. Throw them in there. Now it's public policy. And it may be that this new law, this new policy, would cause these midwives to second-guess their faithfulness to God. It may be that it would cause them to wonder if they even did the right thing. And it may well be that they were criticized for it, seeing that things have pressured down. But i got to tell you, folks, you don't ever have to second-guess doing the right thing. Doing right has its own reward, regardless of, how the, regardless of whether or not God builds them houses or not. Doing right has its own reward. And sure enough, Pharaoh's plan B is actually going to be the very thing, his wisdom, this Pharaoh's wiseness, the very thing God uses to free his people and give us a Savior. The simple faith of a woman in slavery, chapter 2, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi, 
and took to wife a daughter of Levi. This is centuries after the brothers and all of them, the tribes are still there. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Three months. This daughter of Levi is Jochebed, J-O-C, but Jochebed. And with her husband, whose name is Amram, they are suddenly expecting a child. Now imagine, you're living under this law. And she knows she's expecting a child, and it's under this cloud of Pharaoh's plan A and plan B. And they know that if that child in her womb is a boy, he's born with a death sentence already on his head. Imagine the fear, the anxiety, the gloom of what would be a nine-month ordeal. They didn't have ultrasound. They didn't know if it was a boy or girl. And all they could do was pray. I mean, pray for a girl? Is that what you would do? Let's just pray that it's a girl. What would you do? Maybe not. The Bible says that when the child was delivered, sure enough, it was a boy, and by law, this boy was to be taken out and thrown into the Nile River to be eaten by crocodiles or to drown. But it says for three months... Yaakov had defied the law, and she hid her child. For three months, she nursed him and cared for him, and for three months, no doubt, every night she wondered if this would be her last night with her child if, if she got caught. I don't know how you hide a healthy, growing baby for three months. You couldn't hide a baby boy in here for three minutes. None of my three boys, that's for sure. But for three months... She hid this baby. And they had to have been some anxious, terribly anxious moments for her. She's a slave. As a slave, Jacobed would have worked either in the brickyards or out in the fields. And I imagine she and Miriam, they would probably switch, take turns with hiding places and changing strategies. Whatever the case, the clock is ticking. Because babies grow. And they get louder. And she knew that eventually it would become too much. And with her frayed nerves and at her wit's end, it was painfully obvious that this dear woman of God could no longer hide this child, that the secret couldn't be hidden. Verse 3 says, And when she could no longer hide him, she, chapter 2, she took for him an ark, an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags, the reeds by the river's brink. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood afar off to wit or to know what would be done to him. Wow. You mothers here, in fact, all of you women, can you imagine what Jacobet is enduring in these moments? Can you imagine the tears interwoven with these bulrushes as she carefully crafts this little ark that's being pitched with slime. We see that later, or earlier in Genesis. And here's her little baby and her broken heart as she puts the child in the Nile, not as a sacrifice to the Nile God. That's when you throw him in the water. That's not what she was doing. This was with faith in Jehovah God. So she puts him there. 
And then as she watches her boy floating helplessly by the reeds at the mercy of those crocodiles, the Bible tells us that Miriam, his teenage daughter, stood afar off because she wanted to see. She wanted to see what God would do, if anything. She wanted to know what would happen to her brother. Some of you have been babysitters before. You know what it's like to be a babysitter of a little infant and the worst possible thing is for that child to go missing or to get hurt on your watch? Say, Pastor, how do you know that it was God they were trusting? I mean, it doesn't say that right there. You're making assumptions that, that she, want, she waited to see what God might do. And that Jacobed was a woman of God and she did this, this ark as faith in God. How do you know that? Well, I'll show you in a minute, or the Bible will. But look at verse, chapter 2, verse 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And of course, this washing is not just bathing. They had expensive, nice baths in their palaces. This was ritual. That river was a god. So it was a dual purpose. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister, to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? Now, wait a minute. Where did Miriam come from? I mean, we just read a moment ago, the Bible says that she stood afar off to see what was going to happen, at least far enough away where she could see the baby. So it wasn't too far, but far enough where, let's see what happens, hiding. How'd she get here? Well, folks, I can tell you how. I think you know how. Her feet of love and her legs of hope took her there as fast as they could. As soon as she saw what was happening, and this was the daughter of Pharaoh, and that compassion on the face of that princess, she saw an opportunity. So she said to her, your, your highness, should I go fetch some Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? Because she couldn't. Pharaoh's daughter looked at that baby, and when a mother's heart comes across a baby's tears, something happens. She said, yes. Go find some woman. And whew, she was gone again. Miriam is running, legs and feet flying. And all the while, she knows just the woman for that job. And I can just imagine her singing, Blessed be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, who's heard the prayer of his servants. And as soon as she gets to her mother and sees her, her eyes are swollen from crying. Her face is distraught. She's weeping and her heart is faint. And as soon as she sees her, she knows that God is in this. Look at verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. Not just some Jewish woman. The child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. 
Wow, you talk about, talk about a happy reunion. Here goes my child and the brokenness. Here comes my daughter, come. And you come back and she says, take this child. Nurse this child for me and I'll pay you. I mean, I can look on Jacobin's, her face and the, she had to hold back some kind of emotion. Imagine when the princess handed the child to her, it's her child, and said, take this child and nurse it for me and I'll pay you. The money's coming out of Pharaoh's wallet for nurturing her own son. She must have laughed and rejoiced in her soul as she realized, I'm not working for the daughter of Pharaoh. I'm working for the God of Israel. This is God's doing. The omniscience and omnipotence and the grace of God are all on display here, just like they were in all those chapters in the book of Genesis. And you notice that when God records the story, we're reading it. When he records the story for our admonition, he does so in such simple terms. It's practical. It is without fanfare. It is without any embellishment. It is just matter of fact, this is how it happened. And there's a reason for that. It is to remind us tonight, beloved, that it doesn't matter how dark and troublesome the situation. These women didn't know what we know tonight. It doesn't matter how things appear on the outside. God is still always on his throne. And because of that, regardless of the darkness, regardless of who's on the throne in Washington or, or in Tokyo or in Rome or in London or wherever, yes, there can be light in the darkest night. And that there is always, whatever the circumstances, always an opportunity for the light to shine in that darkness. Jacobin and her husband, they couldn't do much of anything about their situation. They were powerless. They were born into it. It looks like they're going to, along with those midwives, all die in that situation. And the truth is, there just wasn't much that they could do. Not in America, we say, well, we, we, you know, we got the law, we got the Constitution, we can do this, we can do that. They couldn't do that, you understand. There was one thing they could do. They could believe God. The one thing they could do is they could have faith. And this is how we know as we mentioned earlier, how we know that it was their faith in God that led them to make that little ark and to stand afar off and see what God would do. We're told it was. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, by faith. See, God gives us his revelation so we know. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses was hid. It says they were not afraid of the king's commandment. What that literally means is they feared God more than they feared man. And faith in God, when there was no reason to have faith, faith in God is what led them to do that. I mean, you think about what did this woman, Jacobet, have? She didn't have any money. The Hebrew midwives, what did they have? They didn't have any position or power or influence or possessions. Slaves in Egypt had pretty much nothing. But she had faith. She had faith in God, and it wasn't some 
crocodile or a beetle who is powerless. How much faith? I don't know. I only know that it was enough to fear God more than Pharaoh and enough to do all that she humanly could do. I mean, that's about all she could do is make an ark, put a lid on it, and pray for protection. And God honored that. You know, we said a moment ago that that Jacobet and these midwives trusted God even though they had no Bible. Right? No Bible. No prophets to speak of. They had no miracle workers in their midst. They trusted without Romans 8, 28. They trusted without Psalm 26. Without John 14. Without being able to turn on some television show. And there's a series on there called Five Faith Facts for Fighting the Fears of Pharaoh. And they were able to take notes. They didn't have that. But they still trusted They still trusted God. Well, what do we have? We have not just Romans 8.28. We have the whole book of Romans. We don't just have Psalm 23. We have all of the Psalms. Not just John 14. We have the Lord Jesus himself in our midst. And then 4,000 years of God's faithfulness demonstrated in just the first book and one-twentieth or so of the second book of the Bible that we were studying on Wednesday nights. We have the New Testament church. We have the whole counsel of God. We have, as the Apostle Peter wrote, all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have all of that. Here's the question. Do we have faith? Do we trust? Do we believe God? Chapter 2. Look at verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it, and the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Folks, here's Pharaoh's daughter. Immediately she can tell this is a child of the Hebrews. And it's interesting, she gives him a name that really has a double etymology, as you will also see in the book of of Exodus. In other words, the word Moses has a Hebrew and an Egyptian meaning. The Hebrew word means to draw out. The Egyptian word means to give birth. It's why they put Moses, the Egyptian is M-E-S-E-S, like Ramses, Ra, M-E-S-E-S, is Ramses. It means that Ra, Ra gave birth. In this case, Pharaoh's daughter unwittingly gave a prophecy because Moses the man would both draw Israel out and give birth to a nation when they pass through that Red sea, the waters of the Red Sea. Essentially what you have already, beloved, what we have already in the Exodus story, just in our second message and series, are three great spiritual issues that we ought to know and, and see tonight. The power of Satan, it's real. Satan is a murderer from the beginning. You see the power of Satan, you see the power of God, and you see the power of faith in that God. Those are the same lessons we saw over and over again in the foundational book, the book of Genesis. Satan's power, as always, is seen especially in the threat of death. Satan has always used death in an attempt to frustrate the people and the purposes of God. We saw it with Abel. 
We saw it with Joseph and his brothers. You're going to see it with Herod and the Christ child. You see it here with Moses. Satan thinks that death or the threat of death is, a, is an effective way to, to ruin all of the purposes of God. The truth is, Jesus conquered that death. For you and me tonight, he conquered death, and that's the power of God. There's the power of Satan, the power of God. And to the degree that we realize the power of God, we can experience the power of faith. In other words, Satan can do much to a person who's afraid to die. A lot. He can make his life misery from beginning to end. It's called the bondage is what the Bible calls it. Fear of death. All their lifetime were subject to bondage. But Satan can't really do much to anyone who's not in bondage to that fear. Who can say, death, where is thy sting, grave, where is thy victory? There's a reason why the Holy Spirit uses the word ark. Back, back in verse 3 to describe this little baby's floating device. Because the only other time it's used in the Bible, we studied it a few months ago. Genesis 6, Noah's Ark, also with pitch and slime. That was Noah's salvation. It's a reminder to us in her faith that salvation is of the Lord. And one day, this little three-month-old baby, think about this and we'll close. One day, this little three-month-old baby, they don't know this, they have no clue about it, floating helplessly down the river of crocodiles. This child almost 2,000 years later, will be seen on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus himself. And you know what they're talking about? It says they're talking about our redemption. They're talking about Jesus' exodus, where he gives his blood and he's resurrected. The power of faith. Beloved, we have every reason, every reason to utilize it tonight based upon the words and the works of the living God who has shown us over and over and over again that Satan and death and all the powers of this world cannot frustrate the powers and the purposes of God. God was kind to these midwives, but God is eternally kind to us. He's eternally kind to us by virtue of the fact that you're sitting there right now saved by the grace of God. He's eternally kind to us because of the everlasting gospel that he has provided through the sacrifice of his own son. A little nation's about to be born. It was promised to Abraham. It was promised to his family centuries before and that nation with all of its flaws and all of its failures and all of its follies will pretty much be the center of world events for the next several thousand years. And then again, the focus of the time of Jacob's trouble as it draws nigh in these last days as well. You say, but pastor, God wanted Abraham's seed. He wanted Israel to be a light, a testimony to the world, to be, to be faithful. Well, they failed over and again. But it's not Israel's faithfulness that is shining through this. It is God's faithfulness that shines through all of that. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And as we continue to, to study line upon line and precept upon precept, it's just so powerfully evident that what we're living in now and what we see around us all of it was foreseen, foretold, and foreshadowed. 
in the very first words of this book, your word, the Bible. Thank you for this book. I pray that we will embrace it, learn it, but most of all, dear Father, help us to believe it. We have the whole counsel of God. Help us to trust you no matter what happens tomorrow or the next day or the month following. And when we turn on the news and when we read in some article that one of our politicians says that we have an imminent danger in this country, help us just not to be faint of heart, but to be full of faith, knowing that we were told. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.